Good morning, Maranatha. Merry almost Christmas. All right. That's a hard act to follow, I know. There's a lot cuter than, uh, than all this hair up here, you know. So grace and peace to you on this. Uh, this what we're recognizing is the third Sunday in Advent, although technically, as we've noted, it's the fourth. But uh, again, it's 2020. So as, there are no rules. But dear brothers and sisters, let's pray as we look to God's word. Father, we thank you for the joy of this season, the joy in remembering that you became man and dwelt among us to bear our burdens and to set us free. We thank you that out of the mouths of babes we can pray. You know, we, we just heard our, our children being able to, to learn your scripture call on your name through your word to remember that you are a wonderful counselor. You are our everlasting father. You are indeed our prince of peace. Father, we ask that you would, through your spirit, open our eyes to your word. We ask that you would, uh, through your spirit, make much of Christ today in our time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, uh, but I find it really hard to fake excitement. You know when somebody is really excited to give you something and they want to watch you open it? I have this reaction that there's like, it really makes me very self-aware and anxious because they're so excited and you feel like you have to match their excitement and they say, aren't you so excited? And my tendency is like to begin to pull back and go, yeah. And I want to temper their excitement. I don't want to offend them if I'm not as excited as them. But, but what I end up doing is just faking it. I know! And I don't think I'm alone in this. And maybe this is how you feel about this season. There are signs everywhere that tell us that this is the greatest time of year. That this season is filled with joy and peace. According to Lexis, this is the season, December to remember, right? But is that true for you? For many, this season is hard, even in a normal year. But add the dumpster fire that is 2020 into the equation, joy and peace may be one of the last things we're experiencing. Many feel the stress of the season, end of year deadlines, finishing up shopping lists, even doing so on a shoestring budget. Navigating this season and making plans in light of living in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. Others feel the weight of the season. It's just another Christmas spent alone. It's another one spent without a loved one. The isolation of this year has limited you from being able to even honor and, and celebrate various, various practices and traditions. And you just feel an overall weariness. Whatever it may be, I, I wonder if you're faking Christmas this year. Faking joy and peace, saying the right words, but not actually experiencing it. Maybe you're just not even faking it. You just feel the weight. There's weariness you feel deep in your bones and in your heart. And the best we can muster is to find a reprieve in distractions and in busyness. Bob Dylan sums it up perfectly. It ain't dark yet, but it's getting there. This is where Advent begins. 
but it's not where it ends. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is the beauty of Advent. This is the blessing of the gospel. This is what our passage this morning, Isaiah 35, is all about. Rescue, rejoicing, and renewal. Would you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 35. And follow along as I read. This is God's word. And the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs up springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's word. As we consider this passage this morning, I want to unpack two thoughts. First, that God has come to rescue his people. And two, God's rescue strengthens our heart with a resolute joy. So one, God has come to rescue his people. And two, that God's rescue strengthens our heart with a resolute joy. And these two thoughts together, I I think if if we think about them in light of this passage, we'll see that those who know God in redemption will have joy as a mark of their lives. That those who know God in redemption will have joy as a mark of their lives. And so that's first part. God has come to rescue his people. This passage is part of a longer section that actually begins in chapter 28. The the book of Isaiah is a big book and a complicated book. But there is this cyclical pattern that Isaiah, so there are these rhythms and, uh, that Isaiah is uh, rehearsing. Uh, one, one commentator says that Isaiah is like building surround sound. So he goes a, around the story. He retells the, uh, a story of judgment and mercy of God's righteous rule and how he will judge wickedness, but how he will 
come to save his people. And there is this regular routine that he circles around and he builds this speaker system like a, like a surround sound. So we hear it's amplified over and over to inform God's people. And so this section, Isaiah 28 to 35, is one of those sections. And it's culminating in our chapter here. Through several chapters, Isaiah has details the sin and wickedness of the people as the nations of the world. They have rebelled against God, everyone. They have trusted in their own might, their own wisdom, their own ways. And instead of being a light to the nations, what the people of God were meant to be, to bring them in, the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah abandoned the covenant of God. They acted like the nations, not as a light to them. They acted like them in idolatry, in corruption, in injustice toward the weak and the vulnerable. Therefore, God was going to send forth other nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to act as the sword of his wrath. But God's judgment wasn't just going to be for the people of Israel and Judah. It, was, it is for sin, for sin that exists in all the world. He was, God was going to judge righteously everyone. And when God uses these foreign nations as an instrument of his judgment... He uses them as an instrument in his hand. He says, I will also judge them. You can read this in the book of Habakkuk too. This is exactly what Habakkuk is talking about. That, they will, that God's people will be judged, but then the wicked nations will also be judged by God's hand. And God's judgment is full, thorough, and severe. If you read chapter 34... You'll see that he describes this judgment. It is, it is fierce. Yet our chapter this morning also shows that God's mercy is just as full and as thorough as his judgment. Because where sin had left a barren wasteland, God promises to bring about a flourishing garden. The totality of God's indictment and judgment that are outlined in these chapters, 28 to 35, give us a bigger picture, a complete picture of God's judgment over sin that, is, that he's begun, but that he will ultimately, that it will ultimately come to pass in the future, that is not yet completely fulfilled. In other words, there is a near fulfillment, but a greater fulfillment yet to come. And what Isaiah is showing us is that God is sovereign and unmatched in his rule and his reign. And as a result, this begs the question of the listeners. And here it is. And it's not just for listeners to Isaiah. It's for us as well. It begs this question. Where are you putting your trust? In whom are you hoping in? Because if you trust yourself for the things of this world, here's what God says. You will experience nothing but desert. But if you turn and trust in Yahweh, if you trust in the Lord, he will turn the desert of this world into a blossoming garden. This is, this is the choice that Isaiah is laying before us. Again, Isaiah is asking, where, what are you trusting in? In whom are you relying? What are you hoping to give you joy and peace? You see, Israel, at the time of Isaiah's writing, was a shrimp 
among whales. They were a little nation in the crosshairs of superpowers. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and not to mention the others that are nipping at their heels right around them. So the leaders of Israel and Judah began to look for political alliances. They began to look for military alliances, economic fixes um, by, by partnering with these bigger nations in order to save them. They didn't trust in God to save them. They were saying, How, what, are the, what are the pragmatic means by which I, we can rescue ourselves? These big nations want to swallow us up. They trusted in themselves and the things of the world instead of the God who had delivered them, the God who had preserved them. They got and brought them into, a land, into the land in the first place. And in so doing, they abandoned the Lord and unrighteousness festered. And like Israel and Judah, the surrounding nations also trusted in themselves. They saw their victories and their might as evidence of their own inherent greatness and power. The victory was of theirs, of their false gods. They mocked the God of Israel and Judah and leveled, and leveled other nations with atrocious force. But God is saying, don't go looking for salvation in the superpowers. Look for salvation in this little nation that's tucked away. Because God loves to shame the wise things of this world. He loves to turn things on its head. And so God has the last word, both in judgment and in salvation. You see, the sin of this rebellion from God, this reliance upon self, this living as if we are our own lords, breaks everything. We see it first in the, in the garden, don't we? Adam and Eve. They were, God made this beautiful garden and he sets people in it. And their sin, what, what happened as a result? It wasn't just that they were separated from God, but thorns and thistles infested the ground. The garden was turned into a wilderness, into a desert. And we still see it today. We see it unfolding in the headlines as well as in our relationships. We look to money, career, politicians, education, people, a new experience, time off, a new job. We really can do this with anything. We're looking to these things to satisfy, to make us whole, to bring joy and flourishing, but ultimately nothing deeply satisfies the longing of our heart. They may give us a temporary joy, but the law of diminishing returns say we need more and more and more. You see, these things, we look to these things for life, but they leave us depleted like the desert. They ask more and more from us and give us less and less. And the more we try to fix it ourselves, the more of a mess we make. Friends, where has your sin made a wreckage of your life? As you pursued your own interests, where have you just, you've seen scorched earth in the background, in the rear view? Where, has the, where have the sin of others left that for you too? Because it's not just our sin, we, we also experience it from the outside too. 
I saw a story in the New York Times this week that said that home decorations uh, this season were way up. Has anyone noticed that? It's a lot more decorations. And they, th- they, were, they, were, they were commenting, it, it's a way that people were likely, uh, they were doing this in order to be less gloomy in this really difficult year. It was a way to spruce up the place. But I think this is a metaphor for the way that we look to things to rescue us. We look to the things to save, uh, things of this world to save us. We, we want to decorate the outside. Oh, this will, this will be the new thing that will fix it. But what Advent reminds us of, what it calls us into is that this season reminds us that nothing other than God himself can do that because soon the lights will go away. I know that there are some people that leave their lights on all, the, all year round. They have a Christmas tree. We all know that, you know, we, we, we all make judgments about them too. But, there's, but that ultimately doesn't satisfy. But God says, turn to me and I will give you everlasting joy. You will be deeply satisfied. Because, and he says, the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to come, and I will make a garden where sin had left a desert. He would rescue creation itself. The deserts would spring forth with beauty and flourishing. They would no longer groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, but they would sing the praise of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. God loves his creation, and he will, he will loose it from the, the pangs of, of, of sin and, and the curse. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus or the lily. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Out of the arid and barren land, God would make a garden to grow. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon were known for their beauty and and the richness of their lands. Lebanon, maybe you've heard of the cedars of Lebanon. If you think like the redwoods in California, those giant sequoias that are just strong and mighty. Carmel and Sharon were known for their, for their fruit. It's like Napa Valley. Or like the Midwest with, with, with the wheat and the grain. But even these beautiful lands that everyone boasted in, that were 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 rich resources for those, those places. They said that they will give their glory to the garden that's coming because they pale in comparison. God would also come not just to fix the land, not just to pretty up the place, but to heal his people. He would bring salvation to his people. Look at verse 4. He says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold your God. Look, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. What does he say next? He will come and save you. He will, def- he will defeat not just the surrounding armies, but he will defeat the curse itself. Sin, the devil, and death. And in so doing, He would rescue his people. He came to rescue his people. 
God will repay all those who have stood against him and his people with perfect justice. But for those that trust in him, for those that find their refuge in him, he will save them. He is that strong refuge that Psalm 46 talks about, that you run into and are safe. And this is what we are celebrating even this week, the birth of our Savior, Jesus. It is even in his name. Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. And his name will be Emmanuel. He says that I will come to you and Jesus, his Emmanuel, God with his people. God entered into the brokenness of this world to rescue them and to heal them spiritually, heal us from the inside, but also physically. God had promised to do it. This is the story of Christmas. This is the hope of Advent. God came to redeem his people, to bring them home to himself, to his perfect garden paradise. He came to make them holy and whole. And this is why the angels appear. And they shout in the heavens, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What good news to a weary and anxious and and broken people. A Savior, a Redeemer has come. This is what all those weary and anxious and weak, the the weak world were waiting for. This is what Isaiah People were waiting. They were going to be taken into captivity. They were going to be taken out of their land in exile. And they would be long to come back home. And he reminds them, even before this happens, God will come and save you. Trust in him. They were anxious. They were weak in the knees. They were wringing their hands. Their souls were, were longing. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord, save us. This is what Simeon, a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, or the the comfort of salvation to come. At the temple, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph go to dedicate Jesus as a child. Simeon, who had been longing to see the Messiah, he sees Jesus, and filled with the Holy Spirit, he says this in Luke chapter 2. Lord, now now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Peace that God gives. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The way God would save his people was not by just waving a magic wand, but by giving his very son as a ransom, a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. He was not born in a palace, but a manger. He came to lowly to meet those of us who are lowly. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians, probably my favorite Christmas passage. But when the fullness of time had come, this is Galatians 4, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption is an important word in the Bible. And it details the way that family would would help one another. You see, a person would go into debt so much that they would have to sell themselves as a slave. In other words, they would lose their life because of their debt. 
in redemption, the, 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 uh, the redeemer of the family, it was the duty of the nearest of family, the nearest family member, the kinsman redeemer, like Boaz and Ruth, to rescue that indebted family member by paying off their debt. In doing so, they gave their life, gave the life of their family member back. They paid the debt to redeem, to purchase back the life of the one who is indebted. God is saying, I am your redeemer. Based upon his covenant that he has made with his people, he said, I'm your nearest family member. And I will come and dwell in your midst and I will pay the debt for your sin and I will set you free. Jesus lays down his life to give us back our own. You may recall in Isaiah chapter 6, that great scene where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah is commissioned. Do you remember that? Who will I send? Send me. But you know what? God tells Isaiah at that moment, when I send you, no one's going to listen. No one's going to understand. They're going to reject you. Their ears would be stopped. Their eyes would be blinded. Their minds would not understand. But here's what the Savior has come to do. In His coming, in His proclamation, in His finished work, He pulls the stoppers out of our ears. He takes the scales off of our eyes. He makes the brokenness in our, in our spiritual lives whole. He would deliver them. He would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand. This is the promise of what Isaiah is talking about in verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. This is what Jesus did and he came. But it wasn't just their spiritual life he heals. He heals the whole self. In that way, he would deliver us from the, the grip of sin and the brokenness of our world. The barren wilderness then springs forth to life. Not just in the creation, but in our own souls and in our own lives. It is because of this that Isaiah can say, be strong and fear not. He's not just saying, hey, toughen up, have a stiff upper lift, deal with it. He's actually saying, based on what God has promised to do, that's why we can be strong. That's why we cannot fear. That's why we can have strong and not wobbly knees. Only in the promise of God's deliverance will our anxious hearts ever find a settled peace. And this is why Isaiah tells us, look to God, trust in him. Salvation is from the Lord. It is not found in this world. I read a poem by Mark Dever a couple weeks ago, and I think it's a wonderful picture of how Christ, has his, his, the cradle and the cross help us understand the salvation that God brings. It's called Jesus Held by Wood. Delivered and delivering, Jesus held by wood. Witnesses on either side. Mary stood waiting, quietly gazing, with great feeling on her son. The sky dark above 
As at the beginning, so at the end. Jesus held by the wood, delivered and delivering. Jesus held by wood, the scene of Christmas and of Calvary, of the cradle and the cross. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus has made a way in the wilderness. This is what he says. And there shall be a highway, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. I've never been lost in a desert. I'm thankful for that. But maybe Star Wars fans, okay, do you remember that scene where C-3PO and R2-D2 are walking through the desert? It's just a barren wasteland. It just looks like dune after dune. Or for those, uh, you know, Spaceball fans, it's that there's the same scene in that too. They're wandering through the desert. Everything looks the same. Left to ourselves, we won't find our way out. We need a road. Jesus cuts the road for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life for all who turn and trust in him. The writer of Hebrews actually says uh, that, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some translations actually say that Jesus is the trailblazer. That's what he does for us here. He blazes the trail. He sets the trail out of the desert into his kingdom. God makes a way in the desert to return home, and it is through Christ. But it's not for those who are good enough or strong enough or smart enough. It's for the weak and the weary, those that are lost. God has made it so plain for his people. Look at this. I love this because I'm not so smart. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. God has made it so plain that even a fool won't get lost on the way. All the arrows are pointing as we look to Christ. He brings us home. What we see is that it's God's work from start to finish. He makes us righteous. And he brings us home on the way. Friends, this is the reason for rejoicing. We were lost and wandering in sin. In fact, we were dead in our sin. But God, through Christ, to all who place their trust in him, he welcomes them to his city, Zion, to come with great rejoicing. That is God's eternal city. This is a city that we read about in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, where sin and sorrow are no more, and God dwells in the midst of her with his people. And he personally wipes away each tear. You see, real everlasting joy comes but one way. It comes by being in the presence of and relationship with God. You see, God is a byproduct of being in the presence of God. Joy is not just a feeling that we feel that's fleeting, but it is a byproduct of being in the presence of God because God is joy is the, 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 the fountainhead of all joy. This is what Isaiah is saying to us. Joy comes when we look to and rely upon the Lord. And he invites us not just to express our joy towards him, he actually invites us to experience the joy that he has over us. Friends, I don't know if you think about this. For those in Christ, God delights in you. He is pleased with you. He's not put off by you. I love the writer of Hebrews. He says that Jesus uh, uh, 
proclaims the names of his brothers and sisters in the congregation. You know why? Because he's pleased. He says, I want you to know the depths of my joy for you. This is what the Lord invites us into, into his presence. Friends, if you have lost this joy, look at the gift of God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ. God becoming man on that first Christmas. Look at the cross. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Look at the empty tomb. Death is swallowed up in victory. Sin and the devil defeated and new life, a new heart is given to God's children. And that's not it. Wait, wait, there's more. Look at the promise of what is to come. Of this fullness of the, of the curse being completely put off, put away. So, and it's in this way that we, we remember that God has come to rescue us. But two, we also see that God's rescue strengthens our heart with a resolute joy. God's rescue strengthens our heart with a resolute joy. Because this rescue and redemption strengthens our heart past this season in our weakness, in our anxieties and fears. Look, we're going to put the boxes away. The gifts are going to break and they're going to lose their shine. When the decorations come down, we still have a reason for joy because God's still at work. We see that Isaiah's promises are still unfolding. Jesus didn't just come to heal us spiritually as if we're some disembodied people, that our souls are just this little orb that flows inside of our body and then it's just going to be put off. Jesus came to heal us as whole people, the physical world as well. The groans of this world are not permanent. They will melt away. The groans of this world are not permanent for us. I threw my back out yesterday. That's why I'm like, kind of like hunched over weird. We won't have thrown out backs one day. Our ailments and fears will be swallowed up in rejoicing and leaping. When was the last time you leapt? Isaiah invites us to wait in this joyful hope. I will not do it now. (laughs) Be a puddled mass on the floor. And the ransomed, this is what he says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is our hope. But how do we live in between? What do we do in the meantime? We're still in the midst of strife, social, political, economic, family struggles. We, feel, we still feel the weight of loneliness and isolation. We see wicked flourish. Daily routines feel like, more like daily slogs, if we're honest. So how can we have joy in the midst? How does the joy that Christ has rescued us strengthen us? for joy tomorrow and Thursday. One, we know the promises of God and we bank on them. Eric Yang is is one of my favorite preachers to listen to. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, so he's hiding now. Um, But his sermon a couple weeks ago was brilliant. It's beautiful. 
And he, I can't add anything to what he talked about, but how the, 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 the promise, the thousands of promises God has made, and how, he is, that how he's ticking them all off. He's not going to miss one. Go back and listen to that sermon. It was outstanding. But I invite us to read this passage over and over again. Marvel, rest, and rejoice in the promises that God makes. And when you come to doubt them, say, really? Look at the cradle. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the work that God has already done in you. And he's promised to bring to completion. Know the promises of God and bank on them. Number two, recognize that God has not left us alone. He has given us his spirit. And this is what Paul uh, talked about this last week. The comforter, the advocate, the one who intercedes for us, the one who knows the deep wells of our souls as well as the mind of God. That spirit has been placed in our heart as a down payment of the hope that we have because of the finished work of Christ. And as we walk by uh, by the Spirit, we bear fruit. It's not an accident that the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, among other things. The Spirit reminds us that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, so therefore walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And this is the paradigm of God's deliverance. It's not new. We have been delivered, but we still are not yet at the kingdom. If you remember Israel being led out of Egypt, God delivered them from Pharaoh, crossed the Red Sea, but they did not immediately arrive at the shores of the promised land. Instead, they walked through the wilderness, but they didn't do so alone. They walked in the presence of God where, where joy is with God, the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. God gave them water out of rocks and bread from the heavens and meat on the wind. Their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. Talk about a marketing campaign. All birds have nothing on them. They, did they face opposition, hardship, and weariness in the wilderness? Yes, but God did not abandon them. You see, just because they were out of Egypt, God meant it to get Egypt out of them. Just like in Isaiah, they would have to go into exile and come back. And they would go into Babylon and come back. And it would, even though they were back from Babylon, Babylon still had to get out of the people. And it's the same for us. God delivers us, but he is at work making us more into the image of Christ. And God uses his time as, as, a, as a good father who disciplines their child to mature, to strengthen, to teach his, his children that he can be trusted. That his ways are good and they lead to life. So he does for us. We're to work out our own salvation knowing that God is at work in us and through us. So we're to press on toward the, goal, the call of, of God and the upward call of God in Christ. And in this way, we have a distinct advantage, brothers and sisters, over the Israelites in the wilderness and even in Isaiah's audience. We live on the other side of Christmas and Easter. 
We have seen God prove himself over and over. And even in the midst of groaning, let us have hope. Let us rejoice in the hope we have, in the rescuer who has begun the great work of salvation in us. For we can say with Paul in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We can bank in the fact that as we have been saved by Christ, as we look to him, he is still at work saving us day to day. Not that it's incomplete, but that we are working that salvation out. And we know that it will be complete, that we will ultimately be saved as we walk by faith looking to Christ. Remember that God has not abandoned us in third and last In this season and every other one, let's remind each other of the hope that we have. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Let's remind each other to keep our eyes on Jesus. Dear saints, this is the work we get to do together, spurring one another on in Jesus. This is the goal of Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in, in life together. That the goal of Christian community is to speak words of salvation to one another. It is meant to point one another to Jesus so that our eyes are fixed and we walk by faith toward the kingdom. Who are you going to encourage this week? Who could you reach out to and say, hey, I want you to know I want to walk arm in arm with you to the kingdom. Advent invites us to long for this kingdom and to do so together as one body in Christ. Joy marked the first coming of Christ. It marks the heart of the Christian who waits for his return now. And joy is not ultimate. Everlasting joy is not found in the things of the world, but in the presence of God himself. And what we know now in part, we will one day know in full. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, He came to save his people from their sins. He is God's rescue and redemption. And as we experience it, it leads us to joy and to remain steadfast in that joy. Dear brothers and sisters, let's not fake it, but let's rest in it. Oh, come, let us adore him, even as we await his coming again. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your rescue comes in Christ. Lord, I I pray that if, if there are those that are still trusting in their own way, that you would show them the desert of their own making and the and your righteous wrath that burns against it, sin, but also show them your abundant mercy 
that welcomes them into the garden of your, of your presence. And for, for those that have trusted in Christ, I pray that we would rejoice in your rescue and rest day by day in that joy, even as we long, long for your return. But we will know that joy in fullness. We pray in Christ's name, our King, our Redeemer, our Rescuer. Amen.